From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. It's the one song that over and over again I sang inside my head. We're able to dissect a sound. We're able to examine what makes up that sound, how it works. I mean, the song's one of the most perfect pop songs ever written. And then you start to sing them night after night after night. And the bass is... Bum, where does a song like this come from? You know, I don't really know where the songs come from. It keeps moving forward and unfolding and unfolding. There seems to be a time in our lives, between the ages of, say, 9 and 18 or so, when our ears and our brains are locked together in a way they never will be again. When music comes on the radio or spins on a turntable or echoes through a concert hall, and it's injected right into our bloodstream ending its journey deep in the core of our brain. There, in our memory bank, it lies forever, coiled up, waiting to be unleashed by the slightest trigger. A few notes, a guitar lick, a drum riff. And a flood of memory catapults you into your past so powerfully, you refeel what you were feeling when you were 12. I mean, sure, you can be turned on to a piece of music when you're 30, then hear it again when you're 35 and think, hmm, that reminds me of a few years ago. But it's just not the same as being mentally shot out of a cannon and landing in the backyard of your childhood home when you hear, oh, what a lonely boy. It's just not. And this connection between music and memory is a subject that we can talk about for hours and hours and hours. But today on ReSound, we only have one hour. Less talk, more listening to stories of music and memory. Stay with us. That you could actually record voices and separate them from their sources is a profound idea that I think changed music completely. So this idea of songs and the way they're hardwired to our childhood memories is also something that intrigued producers Ann Hepperman, Kara Oler, and Rick Moody. And they all happen to be musicians, which may account for their interest in the subject. So they started a series called Song and Memory for American Public Media's Weekend America. Before we listen to some of their stories, Kara and Ann, why don't you give us a little background on the development of the idea? What made you think of it? How was it born? Anne and I moved to New York about two years ago, and just a little bit before me. And when we moved here, we we were in touch with Rick Moody. Rick is the brainchild behind this whole operation. Maybe we're a little bit of his puppets, if you will. <laughs> but, you know, he had this idea to have a kind of cultural history of song and memory. And for us, it was just something that we just immediately jumped on because we love music, we love song, we feel that songs are just such a huge part of our lives as well. And music is a big part of our lives as well. So it was really exciting for us to have Rick come to us and ask us to be a part of this this project and this series. And, you know, by the same token, for me, and I know for a lot of people, I mean, the music you hear when you're young, it just really permeates your entire self. And I'm just wondering if when you were looking around for people to interview and stories to tell, was there anybody who didn't have a strong association right away with this idea? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of question that Karen and I, we've both talked about. We just throw this out at dinner parties and cabs, wherever we go. We're kind of always (laughs) looking for people to participate in this. And for some people, it's a really difficult question. They just go, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just something, it's such a big question for them that they couldn't think of an answer right away, or there isn't one song that stands out. 
But yeah, I mean, we get a lot of a lot of really excited answers, and you could spend hours um, listening to them talk about a particular song that reminds them of their parents or their childhood home and things like that. Is it fair to say you're both musicians and composers? I mean, that's the one thing that brought Kara and me together in the first place is music, is um, both our love of music and coming from musical families. I mean, the odd thing is both of our parents sang opera or sing opera. Your mm-hmm. parents still do sing opera. So, and we compose. I mean, that's what's exciting for us is that we do composition for this series. But it's hard to call ourselves musicians and composers. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Anne and I, we were also in two bands together when we lived in Arizona, and we definitely wrote all of our own songs for that. So, I, you know, I, I guess our hesitation is, you know, you say you're a musician and a composer, that that implies that you're really good at it. <laughs> and maybe that's what, <laughs> maybe we just hesitate to put ourselves out there as, like, the best. We but don't we, want anybody to book us any shows right now. I guess. See. Well, but we love it. We'll put we, the I word out. No bookings. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about the first story we're going to play, Rocky Mountain High. Now, you know, right away you just even mentioned that song, and at least half of our <laughs> listeners are back in junior high. It's a great song, except I learned, I think, Kara, I don't know about how you feel about the song. I learned that John Denver wasn't cool. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, like he was a nerdy person to like? Is yeah, that what you mean? <laughs> I had no idea that this was a guilty pleasure, but Rick had his opinions about it. Kara, I don't know what your opinions are about this song, but... I, I mean, I have to admit, you know, when I pillaged my parents' record collection, I didn't take the John Denver records with me when I left for college. <laughs> so... Oh, my God. <laughs> now I would. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I truly didn't discover John Denver and appreciate John Denver until doing this piece. Okay, so let's listen to Jeffrey Carpenter's memory of Rocky Mountain High. It's produced by Ann Hepperman, Kara Oler, and Rick Moody. My name is Jeffrey Carpenter, and the most memorable song from childhood for me is Rocky Mountain High by John Denver. He was born in the summer of his 27th year. I think it was one of my first vinyl records. And that song in particular, I just love to play over and over and over again. In fact, my brother, he just got tired of listening to the song. And one day he just took the record and cracked it over his knee. My father was a youth minister. Every summer we would take a trip to Colorado to a a camp called Frontier Ranch. Their mission was to sort of bring the news of the gospel to young people. Turn in God's Word tonight to Genesis chapter 2. They would start out by having a music ministry where someone would get up with a guitar and lead songs. And John Denver figured heavily (laughs) within the music since you know Colorado was his place he left yesterday behind him you might say he was born again you might say he found the key to every door so every night all the kids would get together and sing songs and then someone would get up and have a very simple sort of message well 
this particular evening, whoever it was got up to speak, and it seemed like he was getting something off his chest. I remember there was this pained look on his face as he described this cult-like organization that was anti-Christian. And at the very end of telling us about these terrible people, he unveiled who was at the head of it. And then it was John Denver, who was chairman of the board. Follow me where I go, what I do, who I know. And they would no longer be singing John Denver songs. And everybody was like, what? I just remember looking at the album cover. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. <laughs> And he's so serene, and he's got such a big smile on his face, and he's the nicest guy in the world. And how could he be evil? But, I, I mean, they told me it was true, so I believed them, but it didn't make me stop loving his music. The Colorado Rocky Mountain High. I find it almost another universe and another life that I would even think that somebody is all evil or all good. It's only funny to me now. Rocky Mountain High. Produced by Kara Oler, Ann Hepperman, and Rick Moody for their Song and Memory series. Here's another story from that series about a guy named Jules Shear. Now, Shear conceived of and hosted MTV's series Unplugged. He was also a founding member of Jules and the Polar Bears in the late 70s and wrote All Through the Night, made famous by Cyndi Lauper in the Big Hair 80s. But his Song and Memory predates all that. When I was eight years old, and I'd spent all my life in Pittsburgh, my uncle, who's a doctor in Los Angeles, he decided to pay for his brother, who was my father, and his family to travel out west and visit L.A., and we were going to go by train. Uh, we had never been on a vacation, ever. I was very excited about this. So after we departed on the train, my two older brothers came back to me shortly after that and said, Mrs. Pardini is on this train. I couldn't believe my ears that they would tell me this because Mrs. Pardini was the principal of our grade school and I had never had any interaction in my life with Mrs. Pardini. And I'm sure she would never have noticed that my brothers not ratted us out. And they said, Mrs. Pardini, Mrs. Pardini, I'm Robbie Shear, I'm Jimmy Shear, you know, and our little brother's back there too with our parents. So somewhere along the way, uh, when the train took a break, we all got off the train, we're all standing there together. My parents met Mrs. Pardini, and then my mother said something like, you know, the kids sing. Kids could probably do a song for you right here. They're always singing in the house. They could probably, couldn't you sing right here? I don't think I'd ever sung a song for anyone 
outside of the house when I sung with my brothers. Like, we used to sing a lot of three-part stuff, and I would try to coerce them and say, come on, Jimmy, we need a third part. Come on, sing this. Do, 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 do. My, my. And I would have Robbie's part already mapped out. Oh, oh. And I would, sing, I would sing my part, and it would all come together, and it would sound like three parts. My, my, oh, oh. To me, that was the most magical part of life, was hearing three parts. That was beautiful. My, my, ho, ho, I love you so. But uh, doing a, a song like Something You Got, it was not at all what Mrs. Pardini would be into. It would seem like, it would seem like something like a juvenile delinquent would be into singing this stuff. Not that normal kids would be into. So I would never think, hey, should we play a song for Mrs. Pardini? I would never enter my brain at that point. So there we were, and we were halfway to Chicago in front of our school principal, who had never before known of my existence. We did really great. We sounded really great. It was like probably a minute and a half or two minutes worth of singing. But, it, you know, just to say, look, Mrs. Pardini, this is, what, this, this is what these kids can do. And that was it. Once we had proved that, I didn't feel like there was any need to, like, do a vamp out or anything like that. I wasn't doing anything like that. So that was summer vacation. During the school year, at some point, Mrs. Pardini walked into our classroom. That was very rare. You never saw Mrs. Pardini. And the kids all sat up like, you know, hey, this is a big deal. Mrs. Pardini's here. And she told the story of her trip over the summer. And I started to get a little squeamish at that point. And then, and then she started focusing mostly upon the reason she was there, which was something you got, baby. The whole class about the student in their very class. Make me work all day. Who had sung for her over the summer. Something you got, baby. And I went, oh no. Make me bring home all my pay. And the kids were like, what? Jules sang for her in a train station? Something you got, baby. It was like Mrs. Pardini was making it up or something. Wow! Up till that point, you know, we were little kids and we were just slinking our way through grade school with almost no notice, you know. And then all of a sudden, Mrs. Pardini took notice of us. I love you so. I love you so, Mrs. Pardini. One of the best parts about the story is just that woman's name, Mrs. Pardini. And he's such a fantastic storyteller. He tells it so well, saying Mrs. Pardini over and over again, and is so able to recreate the dialogue, which really made it fun because the story is a real simple story. After the piece aired, we got a letter from a woman who had Mrs. Pardini um, at went to the same school as Jules Shear and just said that she had to stop. She was just doing the dishes and listening to this piece and then heard the name Mrs. Pardini <laughs> and just stopped 
and listened to this story and just said, I can't believe it. This woman of my childhood, Mrs. Pardini. She was my principal. She was my principal, too. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Pardini lives on forever. Mm-hmm. I really wonder if she's out there somewhere. Well, that could be your next piece. <laughs> <laughs> Finding Mrs. Pardini. <laughs> So what is next for you guys? What are you working on? More music and memory? Are you moving on to other things or both? Yeah, we're going to continue to work on song and memory. And, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe we can turn that into a book in the future. We would love to, Um, especially because we keep getting all of these incredible, you know, one paragraph descriptions of people's memories of songs. And maybe they're not something that would be so good for you know, a five-minute radio piece, but they're just so beautiful, like beautiful little spots in time, you know, beautiful little anecdotes about music or, you know, beautiful scenes, like the the way a room looked and the way it smelled and the way their mom sang a particular song. And so I hope we can somehow continue, you know, to, I don't know, to create and grow that cultural history of music in, in some way that maybe is beyond radio. You know, we hope to continue to do this, I think, you know, for at least another year and make this into a project where, you know, we're working on a website right now where things don't go to air, but we kind of want to create these collection of stories because we have a lot of stories that we just have. And we want to continue to ask people this question and, uh, and document it. Are you going to ever include your own memories of songs from your childhood? You know, we've talked about it. We, the only person of the three of us who's gone through that interview is Rick. And it, man, it's hard to be on the other end. And it's kind of emotional to talk about your own memories. Although Anne's is pretty hilarious. Anne's is about the Oscar Mayer Wiener truck, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, so maybe that wouldn't be totally (laughs) emotionally upsetting. (laughs) Well, okay, the the one musical memory, uh, you know, going back, I guess, to your first musical memory, if we want to do this right now, mine, uh, I'm told by my mother is the Oscar Mayer Wiener song that she used to sing um, as she was changing our diapers and then would play with our legs. And then she does this rendition of, oh, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. She still sings it to me every once in a while. But <laughs> apparently my mother says that's my first musical memory, even though I don't remember it. But it's a hard, it's a hard question, especially when the memory's difficult. You know, at least I know for me, the most memorable song from my childhood or adolescence, no, I'm not going to put it on the air. Hmm. because it's just too, too painful it's, it's it's too painful it's too much and um yeah it's just it's too much yeah and i i'm not sure that mine's good enough <laughs> i don't know i mean it's it's kind of sweet it's about my first crush when i was younger but <laughs> and what was the song it was a song from Lava M when i was in the children's chorus <laughs> i know how, i know how so. erudite <laughs> <laughs> your yes. first, your first song in memory was from La Boheme. Oh my well, God. I was singing it, and I had a super big crush on the the lead character. Oh, La this Boheme. was this was an adult. I take it. Yeah. He oh, was okay. Much older. <laughs> and I kept thinking he would notice me as I sang in the children's chorus. I was in second grade. I, I got over the crush. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Ann Hepperman and Kara Oler, producers, along with Rick Moody, of the Song and Memory series. What's your most embarrassing music memory story? Or most poignant? Or most poignant to you and embarrassing to someone else? Email comments, questions, and memories to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're at the website, you can browse through hundreds of documentaries from around the world or download our podcasts. Our address again is thirdcoastfestival.org. Our next story unfolds like a novel, with great character development, plot twists, a hint of tragic love lost. But it's not fiction at all. It's a remarkable, true story told in a simple way and produced by Judith Kampfner very artfully with an unobtrusive but elegant sound design. It's called The Busker and the Diva. My name is James Grassick and I play the violin. I've played at Carnegie Hall, Tully Hall, but one of my great loves and I guess you might say career, the past many years has been play on the streets of New York. I play in various places. The Long Island Railroad, Grand Central Station, and then I've got the subways. I was going to catch the train, and I'm like, I, I saw you. And yeah, I'm I like, hope you didn't. I was going to yell out in the middle like, of I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll grab, a, grab a soda, and I'll come back and watch it. miss your train. Yeah, I, can, I can wait half an hour, so... When I put the violin under my chin, it's to me the most natural thing to do at this point. I mean, it's, I've been playing the violin for 35 years or more. So uh, I just feel, even though I still have to practice, just to keep strong and to keep fit. And if I make a mistake, well, I don't even hear it sometimes because it's just a part of music making. There's a great piece. I don't play it without, I don't have my accompaniment with me, so I don't play it too often, but it's, I always think of New York, hustle, bustle. And it just has this feeling of people rushing by, you know, it's like almost like a, New York. I, I just basically call myself a musician playing in the streets, but really, I am, uh, I guess, a street musician, <laughs> a subway musician. The word busker can certainly be used in a very good sense, but most people who perform on the street are not necessarily as dedicated as I am, so I'm a performer. My name is Margaret Lang Tan, and I'm a pianist and toy pianist. I work mainly in new music, 
even though my background was originally one of classical music. I can do just about anything that any classical pianist can do, but I'm not sure they can do what I do, which involves a whole new style of playing inside the piano, on the strings of the piano, plucking, bowing, strumming the strings. It's a whole new world that I've embarked on. So all this makes me rather special. I play new music by John Cage, the younger composers of the avant-garde. I've championed the music of Asian composers. I've been called the diva of avant-garde pianism by the New York Press. Um, I've been referred to as the high priestess of new music. And now I'm the sorceress of the new piano. <laughs> that old witch, as I call myself. I have descended from the ivory tower of classical music uh, by playing the toy piano. The toy piano is a real toy. It's what children have in their playrooms. And the challenge of making music without compromise on a toy is not easy. I can now say there is nothing I can do on the adult piano that I cannot do on the toy piano. It was mid-November, a few days before my 75th birthday tribute to the composer George Crumb at Carnegie Hall. I was at Grand Central Terminal and decided to stop by the Oyster Bar, which is one of my favorite restaurants in New York. That is when I heard the heavenly strains of Massenet's meditation wafting down the ramp leading to the upper concourse. I saw this figure in silhouette at the top of the ramp, a solitary figure playing the violin. And almost before I realized who it was, I knew who it was. From that beautiful, exquisite tone that he has, I knew in my heart of hearts that it was Jim Grassick playing. When Margaret first heard me playing, she said, Oh, Jimmy, it's you. And she told me how lovely my tone was. <laughs> I actually felt slightly um, awkward because I really did want to, to give him some money, but I didn't quite know how to do it. I, I didn't feel somehow that it was right for me to slip some change into his violin case that was not appropriate. And so I was very relieved and actually delighted to find that he had several CDs available. And she said, I want some of your CDs. So she bought some CDs for me, and she insisted on buying some of mine for gifts. I said to Jimmy, which of your CDs should I get? And he said, get the recklessly romantic one. I said, okay, in that case I will, and you must write something in it for me. So he actually inscribed it to me with the following words. Margaret, to my first love. We were genuinely, ecstatically happy to see each other. And we gave each other a really good hug. 
and he said, "What would you like me to play for you now?" I said, "Play me the Swan," and he did. So I just started swirling and dancing, and I remember Jim saying to me, "You still move like a dancer." I felt I shouldn't take up too much of his time. I left. That was the end of it, as far as I was concerned. It was a beautiful, encapsulated New York vignette. Thirty years have passed since we went to school. I realized how much older we both are now, and yet he's still very young at heart. He's still very good-looking. He's still. Very lithe and、um, and trim. He hasn't gained any weight. He's not quite as blonde as he used to be, but he's still got a full head of hair. As far as I can recall, I think I first set eyes on James Grasick. Because he popped his head into my practice room, I knocked on the door and there was this pianist, and it was this exotic-looking Oriental. I guess Americans have this tendency to look at the Orientals as exotic, but I didn't even know any Orientals. I didn't know him from the Orient. And it was as if the little Polish boy in *Death in Venice*, which we had just been reading in literature class, had walked into my practice room. I was attracted to her. I don't know how she felt about me. Death in Venice is about a middle-aged man's obsession with the sheer aesthetic and physical beauty of this Polish youth, and that's the best way I can describe the way Jim looked when he was young. She wasn't the usual look of a woman. She was quick in her body. She was this thin, and she walked fast, and she just carried on like natural, and this is what I, I'm attracted to. Her、uh, basic look was classy. Her basic dress was of nice material. I think James had a very loving family. I think he he came from a rather sheltered background, as so did I. My father was a stationary engineer. He takes care of boilers, maintenance. My father was a very prominent lawyer. I came to Juilliard when I was all of sixteen years old. I came here all the way from Singapore. I went to an all-girls school, and never even been on a date before I left Singapore. Didn't even know any boys before I left Singapore. Coming to New York and being on my own could have been a very heady experience. I suddenly had all this freedom, but the discipline of our instruments kept us very disciplined in general. I had the opportunity to ask her if she'd like to come out to Long Island and visit where I live, and she said yes. <laughs> When she, I was a little surprised because I hadn't asked anybody for a date to come fifty miles away. His mother was very warm. Very friendly, very welcoming, because don't forget in those days there weren't too many little Oriental girls running around Juilliard. 
and for him to come home with this exotic creature was rather unusual, I think, in terms of a Long Island home and the suburban context in which he grew up. I felt so at ease with her. When we got to my parents' house, we played the Mozart concerto that I was working on, the D major, and Margaret just read it right off. I remember accompanying James on the Mozart D major violin concerto. He had a tone that was so sweet and so speaking and so from the heart that till this day I still remember how exquisite his slow movement was. We didn't talk very much about our future. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was confused. And I, I, I never intended to do a teaching thing. We weren't thinking about, we're going to graduate from Juilliard, just like you graduate from Yale and Harvard and you become the president of a bank. We weren't aware of what our careers could go. Margaret might have had a little more understanding. The faculty at Juilliard pretty much thought they were grooming everybody for the concert stage, which is, of course was an impossible dream. Juilliard is a snob institution. What would they have thought of the subway being the concert stage? They would probably have, have turned their noses down at it. Most of my colleagues, or most of the people I graduated with, they have a way of life. They meet, they rehearse, they go home, and they teach. They come back and they play the concert or the ballet. And my day is completely different. Making my way on the street and playing the way I do, my association is with humanity. In the intervening years, I got married, I got divorced. I met John Cage. My career developed. I became quite in demand for the kind of music that I played. It was fun, it was heady, it was intoxicating. It's a great feeling when you, when you meet somebody again after 30 years. <laughs> and back at Juilliard, we, we had early feelings, and we, now we're grown-ups, and we, you can't forget those romantic feelings. You can't. I really hadn't intended to see Jimmy again, but I was so taken with his playing that I really wanted to see him again. And also I wanted to get some copies of his CD to give to my friends who were getting married as wedding presents. So I went back to Grand Central and we had a lovely visit. I found this recently the other day and I thought you'd like to see it. Beautiful. That was a Juilliard. Yeah, that's a picture of me about 30 years ago when we were at school together. You still look very much the same. It was as if we could just pick up where we left off. There was some music. I was just playing the Dance of the Spirits and Margaret Tan, my, my friend from years ago at Juilliard, she comes by and gives me, says hello. We Once, went to school together. After so many years, I found out all of what she's doing. Famous with the toy piano and also with a great John Cage, George Crumb. That's enough, Jimmy, stop! Okay. <laughs> there are some wonderful pieces of new music that I'd love to introduce him to. 
which I think he would play very, very well and very, very beautifully. And I'm excited about that. And I do hope that we get a chance to play concerts together. It could be quite special. Well, I'm on my way to Margaret's and I'm, I'm looking so forward to seeing her. It's a great moment in my life to have the chance to see her and be with her again. I tell you what, go out there, go out there, go outside, go outside. No, no, Oscar, you come in. Oscar's fine. Jim's going to be coming to rehearsal very soon. I'm really looking forward to, to, to his being here. I've told all the dogs he's coming and everyone's waiting at the door for him. She brought me upstairs, a nice beautiful piano and photographs. And we got going on these uh, Percy Granger pieces, and it was just a good feeling, just a wonderful feeling of getting to know her again, and I felt very happy. We practiced quite a bit. We're probably okay with Margaret. Margaret really likes me, and I really like her. We love each other, actually. I mean, I'm aware of the trappings of a possible affair that could lead to difficulties. You can't help yourself if you're really in love, I suppose. But if, uh, you know, my wife were to know about it, she'd probably think, oh, yes, that's, you're making up this excuse, you know, to get together for music, and you're really just, you know, doing it on the floor. I mean, I have to control that. I have to. Because I can't just up in the way, you know. I, I, got a, I got a daughter. I got a wife who needs me. And, and if I don't think it would be healthy right now for, to just... Oh, by the way, I've met somebody 30 years ago who I've madly in love with so, so long. <laughs> Jimmy has a daughter who's 17. And I realize... She's just about very close to the age we were at the time. And that is a very sobering thought. Actually, when I'm playing with Margaret, it's a feeling of connection with a beautiful person. There is always an undercurrent. There is a sexual energy. Of sexual energy around Jim. There's something very, very um, positive in the, in the kind of sexual energy that flows between us. Well, yesterday I had a rehearsal with Margaret, and it was just wonderful. My wife knew that uh, I was playing with Margaret, and she but she knows I play concerts with other women, too. And I didn't... Well, I did tell my wife. I said that this is a beautiful Chinese pianist that I knew at Juilliard many, many years ago, and, and I think she felt uh, a little taken aback but I, at the same time, she understood that I had to have this experience. I don't feel he is someone who connives and who would deliberately use me. I'm sure Jim would like to be able to play in the subway, mainly when he feels like it, but not because he has to all the time. You guys hear me? No videotaping, no flash photography. 
I don't do it out of charity to give him a, a leg up in his career. That's not why I'm doing it. I do it because I, I really do enjoy making music with him. I anticipate this concert with a certain amount of nervousness in my gut because I think my basic feeling in performing it is overshadowed by this trepidation of not letting Jim down. Percy Granger's music is deceptively simple sounding, but the pianism involved is extremely challenging. Tonight with those suede shoes with the long dress, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> it, you just look like a, like a goddess. <laughs> Why? You are the sorceress of the piano. <laughs> We gave these two concerts, one in New York City and one up in Westchester, and we, we, our approach was oh, pretty uh, different. And and a fifth grader, Muriel Mendelssohn, was playing this piece. She played with, with she went like <laughs> And my parents say, Look at look at she's wiggling her hips. You know? so, so so that was how that was my memory of it. And suddenly here I am playing it with the sauceress. So this is this is quite an experience for me. I tend to ingratiate the audience, and Margaret tends to be descriptive of the music, and um, as a, as somewhat of a professor would. And uh, she reproached me for it afterwards. She she kind of cut me off. I could say, oh, she wants to get up, moving on, but um, I had felt she'd done a lot of talking, <laughs> and I wanted to say a few things. And I guess it just didn't seem relevant enough. Stupid me. I, I just put my, my foot in my mouth <laughs> very badly, shoved it down his throat or my throat. I'm not sure, both our throats. I, I made the mistake of telling him that what he did the first night wasn't exactly to my taste. And he took umbrage at this. You know, maybe I'm just a snob. We did lock horns, uh, you might say, and it was uh, a bit upsetting. See, Margaret is a great prima donna, and she has her own techniques and ideas for, for performing. And I've been performing for so many years, so that there had to be some kind of clash uh, in person, personal approach. At this point, Jimmy takes hold of the situation and says to me, Margaret, I don't think we should play together again. I suppose music being such a central aspect to both our lives was not only a great unifier, but also a divider. And I think Jimmy was hurt deeper than I realized.
maybe if we hadn't played together, we would still have remained very, very close and intimate. But this definitely did put a wedge between us. And this collaboration precipitated the closing of that chapter of our relationship. I actually said to Jim, the busker stumped the diva. We are out of each other's lives now, but we're not, we haven't stopped, I don't think, thinking about each other. And we keep track of each other. I very much would like to um, see him still make a success of his career at this point. Nothing would make me happier. Margaret was, in my mind, the uh, highest of, of dedicated and wonderful talents. And for her to tell me, Oh, I love your playing, I love your sound, oh, I love it. This, to me, is the highest compliment I could get. I can be respected. I'm traveling a great deal. It dawned on me when I was in Honolulu, and I was staying in a lovely suite of rooms with a spectacular view of the mountains that, God, here I am on top of the world and there's Jim in New York playing in the dungeons of the subway and I thought well maybe our lives are really too different to be reconciled I do love the violin more than anything else I do I mean it seems a little strange to love an inanimate object Margaret is so devoted in her way, and we're both devoted to music. Jim loves his violin, and I love my Steinway, and I love my toy pianos. Um, to me, they are an extension of me. They are part of my soul. Maybe we love our instruments more than we can ever love each other, because with our instruments, it's so direct. It's so uncomplicated. The relationship is there forever. It's a beautiful song called Butterfly's Concerto or something like oh, that. Oh, that you mean that Chinese yeah, concerto? Yeah. The yellow, yeah. I know what it's called. It's called the Butterfly Lovers Concerto. Oh, it is? Yeah. Okay, so play that for me. Okay. Send me on my way with that. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Jimmy. Good luck on your trip. See you when I get back. Okay. Love. Bye. Thanks. Bye. The Busker and the Diva was produced by Judith Kampfner for the documentary series Soundprint. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Pre the electrical revolution, um, all sound happened in its own locale and didn't go beyond that. And you couldn't repeat sound, couldn't repeat sound um, until the invention of the phonograph, actually. If there's a power cut and all the energy in the world dies, you'll still be able to play records. 
could just wind it up. You stick the needle on and it vibrates. Imagine a world where the only way you get to go hear a symphony is to enter a hall and sit there for two hours or four hours and, and watch somebody perform it. Your appreciation of that is different from you know how it is when you get to play Beethoven in the background as you're doing the dishes. Now we get to a story that we dusted off and pulled from the archives, but it fits right into today's show. It's an essay that I did for Morning Edition in 1995, right after I'd moved to Minneapolis, capping off an impressive number of moves in my nomadic young adulthood, which meant much schlepping. Piles like mountains, stacks of boxes, heavy boxes, boxes that contain things like LPs as an actual vinyl, long playing albums. But some things cannot be winnowed down, no matter how much they weigh. This essay is called "For the Record." In the past eleven years, I've moved ten times. You might think that with that kind of experience, I would have been forced to abandon my pack rat ways. No, instead, each new move just brings me to a higher level of inner negotiations. Okay, if I get rid of the culottes and the culnets, then I can keep every letter I ever got and hang on to my sugar cube collection one more year. But no matter how many times I move, there are certain things that are untouchable, inviolate, things I could never throw away, no matter how embarrassing. They might be. My records are it. Oh, you can take my pictures, my scrapbooks, take my love letters. These are mere trinkets from the past. But records, records capture everything: three dimensions, five senses, the smell in the air, the things unspoken. When a record or song becomes a part of you, it's incorporated into your bloodstream, your bone marrow, your very nervous system. A good record takes you by the hand and, like the spirit of Christmas past, introduces you to the you you were when you first bought it. Heard it and started playing it over and over and over again, confident that the singer was crooning to you and you alone. My first musical love was Michael Jackson. Jackson Five, Dreamboats, All, ABC, the album of albums. When Michael was 12, I was 10. Perfect age difference for the perfect marriage. He was from Indiana. I was from Illinois. We could have a nice Midwestern wedding. And like any great love affair, seeing him again still gives me the goosebumps. That would be the old him, pre-facelift. When I got to junior high, almost any music could make the earth move under my feet. With my girlfriends, we only needed one thing. A beat worthy of the latest line dance. Of course, if boys were around and it was daytime, the perfect song had to have a hint of mystery, danger, or better yet, sex. On the weekends, at actual boy-girl parties, where the first hour was spent on separate sides of the room, the second hour was spent dancing, and the third hour was spent with the fast kids in the closet making out, and the slower kids wondering what it was like to be a fast kid. There was only one alternative. 
Marvin was the only person who could elevate a simple dance to the event of a lifetime or absorb you so intensely that you forgot you were dancing with a boy who smelled. Let's get it on. Pull out almost any one of the three or four hundred records on my shelf, and I can tell you the vital statistics of my life when I bought it, like who I had a crush on, what I wore, and what I weighed. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, David Kittness, Mexican Embroidered Shirt, 102. Inner Vision, Jason Parkin, Green Claws, 110. Pointer Sisters, Wally Lavis, overall. Then there are still other albums whose covers alone are time machines in and of themselves. Boz Skaggs, Silk Degrees. I was a sophomore in high school, visiting my sister in college, after recently cutting my hair and removing my braces. There was a dorm dance, and I met her friend, John Shea. He asked me to dance. I wore a green and white cotton print dress and bear trap sandals. While we danced, he opened his adorable mouth and asked me the question I'll never forget. So, Gwen, like, who's older, you or your sister? Then there was the one and only Stevie Wonder. Songs in the Key of Life, junior year, first boyfriend. I had only ever gone out with one other boy, Evan, just a few times. He was the first boy to ask me out and the first boy who kissed me. He was not graceful. I was disgusted. After he dropped me off, I ran into the house, convinced that my lips had swollen to ten times their normal size and would surely tip my parents off to my evening activities. Have fun last night, dear? Yeah, Dad. It was, it was great. But then someone else asked me out. It wasn't raining. It was pouring. My life had turned into a before and after out of Seventeen magazine. He was cute, he was nice, and he was interested in me. Snow was falling, Stevie Wonder was singing, and I was a goner. Nine months later, my first bow went off to college, and there was only one tune left to turn to. It was the cornerstone of every party. At the sound of just the first few notes, every girl in the room would fly onto the dance floor. The boys, of course, were sitting still. Any boy who wanted to get anywhere with a girl at my school didn't need good grades, good looks, or even good manners. They just needed to shake it on the dance floor. So monumental was the power of the beat. Throughout high school and into the transition beyond, there was only one group who had real staying power, earth, wind, and fire. And they lasted for years. I don't buy nearly as many records as I used to, and far fewer songs now make me want to get up and dance naked through my living room. But when and if I do want to remember the boy whose locker was next to mine in 1972, or what the snow smelled like on New Year's Eve 1977, I know exactly where to go for my one-way ticket.
So there's a story I have to add to the piece you just heard. It's about Keith Jarrett's 1975 album, The Cone Concert. Since my morning edition script was too long, this is the portion that ended up on the cutting room floor, and it's been itching to come out for a decade now. Okay, so The Cone Concert was a revolutionary album for many reasons, not the least of which was that Keith's legendary moaning while playing was actually audible. It was also a two-album set. But most importantly, it was a romantic jazz album, very mellow, and it had one side that lasted for 27 minutes. 27 minutes! Now that's nothing for those who've grown up with iPods that can play music nonstop until your retirement. But for those of us who actually had to get up and turn the record over when we wanted to hear more music, this was nothing short of mind-blowing. Because if you weren't getting up and using your hands to turn the mellow, romantic, jazzy record over, you could be lying down, using your hands for other things. Talk about song and memories. Enough said. And the bass is I'm wondering if you can recall for us your very first conscious encounter with electronic sound. I have heard the first electronic sounds, 1952. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.